listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. This summer, uh, as a church, we've been selectively kind of going through the book of Psalms. And the one that we're going to look at today is Psalms 116. If you want, you can go ahead and turn there now. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 355. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep that. Um, But if you really want a better Bible to keep, we have nicer ones in the youth room that we give out. And so you can just see me after the service if you want a nicer one than that. So um, all that being said, before I kind of pray... As we think about this psalm, Psalm 116, there's something that it's helpful if you know this. So the book of Psalms is kind of a poetic book. It's a worship book. It's always been a book that has been used in worship, um, whether it was by the Hebrew people or Christians throughout the centuries. And so because of that, kind of written into it is this element of poetry, but it's not poetry like ours is. So for example, the way our culture kind of unites with a song, or the way our soul gets stirred is usually by rhyming. Uh, So Amazing Grace is, um, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And and that's not how the psalmist did it. What the psalmist did, C.S. Lewis basically put it this way. He said, they would say approximately the same thing, but using different words. And so if if you've already turned there now, you can look at Psalm 117. (laughs) Last night, our boys fell asleep. Um, We went out to Fort Benning to see all the fireworks and things like this. And so our boys fell asleep before our usual Bible story time. We worked through this little kid's Bible story book. And Karen was like, well, you know, instead of, you know, going in their room and stirring them all up, why don't you just read something? So I was like, all right. And so I read Psalms 117. She said, well, are you going to finish it? And I said, that's it. It's only two verses. She said, well, why didn't you preach on that? Like, you could have, we could have been done in 15 minutes. But if you look at Psalms 117, it says, Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. It's saying the same thing two times, but using different words. And that, for for the people of Israel, for the Hebrews, that's what hit them, just like rhyming kind of hits us. And and so the unique thing about Psalms 116 is, I kind of think of it this way. In my estimation, there are three types of students. If you think back to when you were in school, and I think this encapsulates all of them. There's the overachiever, the average student, and then the underachiever. I think that pretty much kind of runs the gamut on students, right? And so I was somewhere in the middle, but you knew that there were those people who would show up five minutes early to class. They had their special trapper keeper, you know, biology 101, and they'd open it up and Every different lesson had a different page with the date and the time and the professor's name and what they were feeling that morning. And, and, and they got there early so they could set their recorder on the edge of the desk and re-listen to what they heard while they were rereading what they wrote. Okay, like, that was not me. That was probably some of you, and you knew those people by the fifth grade, but that was not me. I was more the average student, show up a minute early, show up a minute late, get most of your assignments in. But then there was also that group of people who sat in the back and they were trying to stay awake. And if it was a biology class, their notes didn't look like the overachiever. If anything, it was like biology, the body is amazing, riboflavin, DNA, puddle of drool. Like, like that's what their notes look like. And, and what, what I find interesting in, in this, in Psalms 116, is the psalmist says, hey, if you're kind of that note taker and you're trying not to drool on your body, like, what, what's going on? He's like, look, 
Pay attention to verse 1. I'm going to encapsulate all of that for you. But, but if you're kind of that average student, it, it, if you're the one who, who wants a little bit more, don't worry. I'm going to open it wider. And then, and then for those of you who showed up early and had your recordings, you're going to listen to the podcast even though you were here and all, those of you, he says, don't worry, I'm going to open it up even wider. And that being said, that does not give any of us license to fall asleep after verse 1, okay? All right, just so you know. Now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your word, and I thank you for this beautiful psalm, this psalm of thanksgiving, but one that is a psalm of thanksgiving because we recognize not just like good times, it's not a psalm of thanksgiving because everything's going well, but rather, Father, it's a psalm of, thank, of thanks and praise because you show us where we were, and, and then you say, do you see how I've been faithful? And Father, when we see that, all of the things that we're prone to trust in, all of the things that bring us temporary happiness, slowly fade to the background. And in the forefront is the cross of Christ. And when we see that, Father, our lives become lives of response and thankfulness. It's a life worth living. It's a life of adventure and excitement, seeking the God whom we most love, who showed us the greatest love that could ever be shown. And so, Father, we just ask, I, I just pray that as we get into your word today, that, that you would tune our hearts to see your truth in this. That as, as we work through it, we wouldn't become distracted, but that you would hold our minds just fixed on the truth of your goodness to us. And it's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. All right, so, so let's get started. Psalms 116. Is this? It's messing up, isn't it? Brandon told me whenever something messes up, just look at the tech team and pretend it's their fault. Come on, guys. He said that's part of their responsibility is to take all the flack. If it, if it keeps doing that, just let me know and I'll fiddle with it some more. I never have this many notes. We may not get out till 3 o'clock. It's okay to laugh at that. That will not happen. Okay? It's okay. You can laugh. You're like, I'm visiting. I didn't sign up for this. All right, Psalms 116, verse 1. Here we go. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. And when, when, I, when I open up this psalm and I begin reading it, and, and, and I, to be honest with you, this was one of the main reasons I chose this text for this morning. Because this idea of a man stopping everything and saying, I love the Lord because, it, it, it put me into a moment of thought. And so let me ask you, why do you love the Lord? This isn't like a pastoral thing where you're just saying, oh, that's a very good question. No, I really want you to answer that question to yourself. Why do you love the Lord? This is not an exhaustive list because he heard me. There are many, many great answers, some better than others, certainly. But what would your answer to that be? I love the Lord because. This, this psalm is typically attributed, even though it doesn't begin by saying a psalm of David, to David. And he says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. And growing up in the Bible Belt, and, and for some of you who grew up in the church, this idea of a God who hears us is not a foreign thing. In fact, it's very regular, it's very plain to us. And so I think many times we miss out on the beauty in it. 
do we realize that when I stop now and I say, Father, I, I, I pray for the missionaries around the world, for those who are living their life for the gospel, for those who are giving their lives for the gospel, that you would give them strength and encouragement, that he hears that. And, and when I think about all the other things that scripture tells us, it's like Reynolds said, he has authority in all things. And so all of the other things that are under his control, from uh, all of the trillions of little creatures to every single hair on our heads and, and on, on people the globe across, the fact that he would hear every little utterance, but then it goes further. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. Take every thought captive. He knows my words, he knows my thoughts, he knows my emotions, and, and he knows all of it for all people at all time. And then it also amazes me that God hears me when I think about my sin. When I think about how far away from God I was before the cross of Christ. When I think about my sin and, and my brokenness, and I think of his righteousness and his holiness and his inapproachable light, it blows me away that he would even want to hear from me. And, and then also when I think about the fact that he is the all-sufficient one. I am not all-sufficient. If Ramen noodles, that's what I do. Like at home, hey, Mom's not home. Well, guess what, boys? We're having ramen noodles because daddy can cook those really well. He's practiced a lot. I'm not all sufficient, but God is all sufficient. He didn't need me. It wasn't like he was lonely, and, and Reynolds even mentioned that. But the all-sufficient God of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who has no beginning, like, he wants a relationship with me. He wants a relationship with you. And it makes me say, I love the Lord because he has heard me. There, there was this, um, there was a mission trip that we went on about a month ago now. There was a team of 15 of us and we went to Clarkston, Georgia. Um, Clarkston doesn't get a whole lot of press in the papers, um, but you may have heard a few people mention it. If you look at a map of Georgia and you look at perimeter, Clarkston is right on the northeast of 285. So most of you know exactly what I'm talking about now. And, and, and it's this very small little town, but in it is the most diverse square mile in the entire United States. And it's two hours from where we're sitting right now. And in that place, the reason that it is the most diverse square mile in the entire United States is because it's a refugee community. The United States welcomes in something like 160,000 refugees a year. And they only take in the worst offenders. So most of these people come from what missionaries typically refer to as the 1040 window, which are the lines of latitude on the globe that show us where the most unreached people for Christ are on the globe. The 1040 window, they're called unreached because not only, for example, there are plenty of people in our town who do not know Christ. And we need to be working and putting all of our energy and effort into doing everything that we can to show them the love of God and show them the truth of the gospel. But these people who live in the 1040 window, even if they wanted to, there was no church for them to go to. Even if they wanted to, there was no piece of paper with God's word on it. They have no access to the gospel. But what is unique about Clarkston is in this little square mile, 
all of the people from the 1040 window are welcomed in. And so Muslims and, and Buddhists and Hindus and everything that you can imagine are welcomed in. And they come to the United States thankful to the United States because they've been rescued out of war and out of prostitution. And they've been rescued out of a desolate place. And, and, and so we can go and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And then the hope is that those people will then in turn say, I love Jesus. He has heard me. He has heard my cry for mercy. In some amazing way, he, he saw fit providentially to pull me from there, place me here in Clarkson, Georgia, so that I could respond to the gospel. Now I'm going to live my life for the gospel. I'm going to go back to Iraq, and I'm going to become a missionary to my own people. Whereas it would take us who knows how many years to learn the language well, and we would never exactly fit in because of most of our genetic makeup. And so while we were there, Reynolds mentioned this, for, for you guys to pray for us. And while you were praying for us, this is where we were. This is a picture of Amon Deer, which is the church um, up in Clarkston, Georgia. It's actually the largest Buddhist temple outside of the country of India itself. And it's two hours from where you're sitting right now. And that's not even the whole thing. If you could see where the, behind the camera, there's a whole other structure where the monks live. It, it's exceedingly immaculate. I mean, down to every last detail, they had a million volunteers come in. And if you go to the next slide, this is a picture of one of the domes. And while you guys were worshiping and singing praises to God here, a month ago, we were barefoot on a limestone floor walking through the sanctuary of worship while they were having a worship service. And some of you in the back may not be able to make this out, but if you look, going around this dome, they may look like lines to you. They're individual statues. And each of them is a representation of one of their 300 million gods, of which you pick one. And that's the one you dedicate your life to serving. And then if you go to the next slide, it's not just these domes, but they have pillars and there are these little 14-inch made out of limestone figures representing all of their deities. And then some of them have more prominence than others. And so if you go to the next slide, they'll have a shrine to a more life-size version. The, the service was held by recording and they started the recording and the monks began chanting and, and the doors opened up. And these people were worshiping a 14-inch limestone figure edged out by the hand of a volunteer. Isaiah 44 talks about this in referring to somebody who goes and takes a piece of wood. And from it, they fashion an idol. And then they save part of the wood to cook their bread on. And the prophet says, are you kidding me? This is Will's version. Okay, don't look. Will, that's not what the Bible says at all. But the prophet he says, are you kidding me that the thing that you would burn for heat and warmth and to feed yourself, you would then turn and you yourself carve into an idol that you would deify? In front of that last shrine, there were about four of them. In fact, I don't remember the name for it, but the head pastor, whoever, you know, kind of the spiritual leader of that one church is deified even as he lives. He has his own shrine. And in front of them, there were about four in that place. There was this wooden box, and it was treated kind of like an offering plate. And people would come up, and they would place their offerings and pray to this God that cannot hear them. And after the service, I looked, and on one of them, there were bananas. 
And I, I went to our tour guide and I said, explain to me, you know, this whole banana thing. What, you know, what do y'all do? I, I was trying to be sensitive. You know, I was trying not to say, you know that can't eat those. Like, I was trying to be sensitive, but I really wanted the answer to my question. And, and so I said, you know, how do you guys handle when somebody leaves food or, or things like this? And he says, well, the monks take it back and they prepare the food and then they set it before the God. And, and then they come back and they clean it up. If you go on their website today, it will show you a list of pictures for what their God has been wearing this week. And somebody comes out and they clean their God who can't clean himself. And they move their God who can't move himself. And they feed their God who can't feed themselves. And as we were leaving, Kyle, he was one of the guys who went on the trip with us. He came up to me and he said, Will, what do you think they get out of that? Like, what? I know what I get out of a worship service. Now, I may have some sin to work through and things like that. But I know what I get out of when I read God's word. What about these people who are kneeling before this little 14-inch thing or leaving bananas in front of an idol? And they called them idols. And that blew me away. I was like, don't you know idols are bad? But like, that's because this is what I grew up in the Bible Belt. And, and I told him, I don't know. But when I read this verse, I know that I have a God who hears me. I, I'm not praying to some little thing that was fashioned by man. And I'm not praying to a God who needs me to clean him up. It's far the opposite. I'm going to God that he would clean me up. And I don't need to go to God and feed him. Rather, he says, I am the bread of life and I will be your sustenance. Do you see how backwards it is? But it's happening today. I, it, I, I felt like I walked into an Old Testament scene. So why do I love the Lord? Because he hears me. Because I'm not praying to a pole and I'm not praying to a stick. Because I'm praying to a God who is bigger than my own understanding. In verse 2, it goes on and it says this. Because he inclined his ear to me. It, it, it has this, this understanding of kind of like a wonderful condescension. You know how like you can have a condescending tone with somebody when they ask you a question that you feel like is obvious to everyone? And you're like, yeah, man, two plus two is four. Right? But hey, keep up the good work. You know, and, and, and you kind of have this condescending tone. It, it's kind of like that, but in a wonderful way. And, and the best way I can think of it is this. Ellis is my three-year-old, and he's been going through swimming lessons for the past couple of weeks. And so he'll come home from swimming lessons and, and be like, Daddy, I did so good. And I'm like, oh, that's wonderful. What did you learn? He's like, I learned how to blow bubbles today, Daddy. Now, what kind of father would I be if I was like, blow bubbles, dude? I can do way more than blow bubbles. I can go underwater and blow bubbles for like a minute. But seriously, you should keep that. You should keep up. And the next day, he comes back and he says, I swam this far. And I'm like, that's not that big a deal. I mean, come on, son. There are people who do laps in the pool, right? And you're like going this far. And I bet somebody has to pick you up, don't they? Well, yeah, I can't breathe. Well, okay, come on. <laughs> not that impressive. But that's not what I do because I'm not a punk dad. Like, I, I get down on the level with my son and I say, you blew bubbles, buddy. That was awesome. And, and you went down to the bottom step and picked up a toy? Yeah, daddy, and I opened my eyes. Son, that's incredible. I, I'm not amazed at what he did. Like, we're about to watch people do it and get gold medals, right? Like, we're going to be there in a month. But I'm inclining my ear to what I already know. I'm inclining my ear to what is not that impressive because I love the one who is saying it. And, and that's the way God treats us. You see, he, 
could you imagine if God, if you were like, hey God, um, I really need, yeah, I know, I got it. Well, I, I haven't really finished saying, yeah, I know, but I, I know the words that are on your tongue before ever you say them. Hey, Lord, it would really help me if, yeah, I got it, don't worry about it, yeah, I know. Hey, um, Lord, th- there's this person in my life that I really feel like I should share that, don't worry about it, I got it, you're good. I can do this way better than you can do this anyway. Like, when we look at it in that way and we compare it to verse 2, it's God leaning down to us and saying, tell me, tell me why you're hurt. Tell me why you're struggling. Tell me what you're worried about. Tell me what you're excited about. I already know how it's going to end, but I love you so much I want to hear you say it. I love the Lord because he heard me. And, and, and it goes on. And the psalmist says, Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Remember, you heard my pleas for mercy. Therefore, there was something bad going on in my life. There was something difficult. But you inclined your ear to hear me. Therefore, I will call on you as long as I live. So here's what we see. And here's how I think you can apply this to yourself. All of us will or have been in a place where there's nobody else to turn to but God. And we turn to God, and God is faithful. So we say, geez, God, because you are faithful, I'm going to live my life this way. That's what he's saying in verse 1. And then, for those of you who want a little bit more, the psalmist says, now let me tell you my story. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Verse 3, the snares of death encompass me. What? What just happened? The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. It's this idea of having one foot in the grave. And you're like, ease up, psalmist. Didn't you just say everything was great? God was good? And what he's saying is, now let me tell you my story. Here's who God is. Here's where I was, what God did, and now how I'm going to live in response to it. Now let me tell you my story, average student who showed up a minute early or a minute late. Those of you who are drooling, now it's time to click in, okay? We're going to go a little bit deeper. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Like I said, we we usually give credit to this for David. And and so many of us cannot put ourselves in the situation where David found himself when he was hiding in a cave, being pursued by men who wanted to kill him. And and I get this picture of, of David being in the back of a cave looking outside of the cave and men with sword and shield walking by wanting nothing more than to kill him because their king Saul was jealous of David and David is looking out and he's saying I was in distress and I was in anguish there was nowhere else for me to turn now some of us may have experienced this those of you who serve in the military have have been in difficult places where maybe you've been pinned down and you're being shot at. And, and you're saying, there is no one else to turn to but God. And, and it doesn't just exist there. You know, certainly in law enforcement, the same thing can be true. But I, I would say, even for those of us who don't live in a situation where we might get shot at or attacked, we, we've been in a situation where we're wondering if the test result is going to come back cancerous. I remember once I was working at a camp, and the lifeguard looked down at the bottom of a pool, and there was a form of a nine-year-old girl just sitting at the bottom of that pool. And in that moment, 
He wasn't thinking about all of his abilities. He, he, he wasn't thinking about what a good swimmer he was. The little girl got pulled up and taken to the director's cabin. And I remember watching her as she was laid out on one of those green military cots. It didn't matter if I could preach well. It didn't matter if I could be winsome and tell a funny joke. It, it, it didn't matter how strong I was and how many push-ups I could do. There was nothing that I could turn to in that situation but God. And praise be to God, that girl threw up everything that she'd eaten for about a week and a half and breathed air again and lived. But all of us will find ourselves in a place where death encompasses us or where, where we suffer distress and anguish. There are three main points that I want us to take away, and here is one of them. A time will come when the things we are prone to trust in will fail us. The things that we are prone to trust in will fail us. Verse 4 goes on, and it says this, Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray Deliver my soul. In fact, I tell you what I'm going to do. Let me just read verse 4 through 9 because that's him telling his story. Suffering, distress, and anguish surrounded me. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return my soul to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. That's my story. That is my story. Do you want to know why I love the Lord that he heard me? Because this was my story. And when we look at verse 4 and it says, Then I called on the name of the Lord. What I wonder is this. How long is your then? How long do you tarry and trust in other things before once difficulty and duress and, and, and suffering and anguish hits the doorstep of your life? Do you turn to God? And, and, and what else comes first? Maybe it's your spouse. Something difficult comes before thinking to pray, before grabbing God's word and saying how you run to your spouse or a loved one or a friend. Maybe it's not a person at all. Maybe when difficulty comes, you, you comfort yourself and say, you know what, there's still enough in my bank account that I can make it through this. Or, or maybe it's your own ability. Maybe it's, you know what, I can handle this. I've got enough emotional grit. I know enough. I'm smart enough. I'm able enough. And I can make it through. I was, I was talking to the teenagers on Wednesday, and I was telling them, when we look at Christ in the New Testament deal with sinful people, we see, we see him deal with adulterers and prostitutes and liars and thieves and murderers, and he welcomes them and he says, come and repent and be saved. But do you know who never finds acceptance at the foot of the cross? Is the proud. Why did the rich young ruler turn away? Because he wanted to depend on himself rather than on Christ. Why did the Pharisees always get called a brood of vipers in a whitewashed tomb? Because they were proud. Their whole thing was, why would you come to the cross when you don't believe that you need the cross? But for all others of us, 
All of us who would say, you know what? I'm not going to trust on this person. I'm not going to trust on this thing. I'm not going to trust on this ability that I have. No, I'm going to live by faith. And we see this all through scripture. I'm going to rattle these off real quick. So just look at them on the back. Don't try to follow along. Romans 1.17, for in the righteousness, excuse me, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Are you a child of God? Do you call yourself a follower of Christ? Because if you are, you must live by faith. Galatians 3.11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 10.38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back from that, my soul has no pleasure in him. Habakkuk 2.4, behold, his soul is puffed up. He's proud. He thinks he can do it on his own. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. As people of God, we must live by faith. There's no other option. Let me give you an example. The book of Exodus is the book of God delivering his people using his servant Moses. And here's basically how it breaks down. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 32, and and it, it kind of alludes to what we've read in Psalms 116. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saves me. In Deuteronomy, Moses writes this, For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone, and there is none remaining, bond or free, Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge? Where is their little stick that they fashioned? Where is the little 14-inch limestone statue? Where is their spouse? Where is their bank account? Where is their ability? Because all of it is idolatry when we seek it before we seek our Savior. Where is it, God says, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Who is it that responded to you, he's saying? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. That's what Moses writes, and do you know why he writes it? Because he was born at a time when every child Every Hebrew child that was born a male was being tossed into the Nile River. And his mom, who who is pregnant, is saying, God, where do I turn? My husband can't help me with this. The police can't help me with this. My ability can't help me with this. So she takes Moses, puts him in a basket, pushes him into the Nile River. And his little sister runs beside it. And it's not like we see in the coloring pages in kids' church or in Sunday school. It's not a little girl frolicking, looking at a basket. It's a a girl looking, wondering if her three-month-old little brother is about to topple and she's going to watch him drown into the Nile. It's a little girl watching, wondering if that little boy is going to disappear out into the horizon and she has no idea what's happened next. Who do I turn to? Who do I trust? But the basket lands in the reeds because God is faithful. And Pharaoh's daughter comes up and sees the basket and has compassion because God is faithful. Then she picks it up. And his kid sister looks at her and says, would you like me to find 
one of the Hebrew women to raise this child. And she says, yes, gives him back and pays the mom to raise her own child because God is faithful. Moses gets older. He goes out. And, and, and he sees an Egyptian beating one of his own countrymen, a Hebrew. And he gets upset and he strikes him and it kills him. And he looks this way and that and he sees no one so he buries him in the sand. Now he's a murderer. God, I am a murderer. He goes out the next day and he sees two of his countrymen arguing. And he says, brothers, why are you arguing? Arguing. Arguing. This should not be. And they look at him and they say, what are you going to do? Kill us like you did the other guy? My secret is known. Where do I turn? Then he finds out that Pharaoh wants to kill him because of what he has done. God, where do I turn? But God is faithful and he escapes and he flees and he finds himself at a well in Midian. But then he's sitting there and he must be thinking, well, my countrymen don't trust me. The nation that I was a part of hates me. I have no hope. I have no future. I have no family. Now what? And down come seven women, daughters of Jerome, a priest, and shepherds are protecting that well. So they begin to chase the women off. And Moses stands up and he says, no, 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 no. And it says in scripture that he saves those women. And the women come and they receive water. And he's then welcomed into their home. One of them being his wife, Zipporah. And because God is faithful, he's taken from there. And he's given a family. And he's given a future. Because God is faithful. And then he finds himself in distress again. He's walking. And there's this bush. And it's on fire. And he stands before it. And a voice comes out. It says, take off your sandals. Where you're standing is holy ground. And guess what, Moses? I'm going to use you to go to Pharaoh and deliver my people. How am I supposed to do that, Moses says? Oh, and you're going to lead your own people. How am I supposed to do that? But God is faithful, and he says, here, throw your staff down. It becomes a snake. Put your hand in your cloak. Pull it out. It's leprous. Put it in. Pull it out again. It's healed because I am faithful. If they still don't respond to you, pour water on the ground. It will become blood. Why? Because I am faithful. I've called you to do something. I'm going to be faithful to see to it that you are able to do it. Well, but God, I can't talk. I, I, I stutter. Nobody's going to listen to me. And he says, don't worry, Moses. I'm starting to get a little irritated with you. We're reading scripture. But I am still faithful. Here is Aaron. He will go and be your mouthpiece. So they go before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I'm going to have no part with that. In fact, because you've even asked, now the workload on your people is going to be more difficult so Moses goes to God and he says, now what am I supposed to do? The people I'm supposed to save don't like me even more than they didn't like me before. And God says, I'm faithful. Go back to Pharaoh. Enter plague one. Pharaoh won't relent. Moses, to God, what do I do? God to Moses, go back because I am faithful. Plague two, three, because I am faithful. Four, because I am faithful. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. And then it gets to the 10th plague. And God says to Moses, this is it. You have seen that I am going to be faithful, right, Moses? Now go and tell him that the firstborn son in all the land of Egypt is going to be killed. Remember how they were killing my people? Well, now they're going to taste some of that. But you go to the Hebrews and you tell them to sacrifice a lamb and to take that blood and put it over the doorpost of their home. And when my angel of death and wrath comes, it will see that blood and pass over. Just like thousands of years from now, I will send my son, the lamb, to die on a cross so that his blood may be shed. So that if you put faith and trust in him, that blood will cover over the doorpost of your heart. And the angel of wrath and God's wrath will pass over you too, he would say to us. 
And so Moses does, and God is faithful, and the people are set free, and that's the end of the story, right? No, because they're set free, and they're like, well, now where do we go? Moses, God, now what? And he says, you see that huge cloud that looks like a pillar? Just follow that, because I am faithful. God, it's getting dark. I can't see the cloud. Turns into flames. Why? Because God is faithful. They get to the Red Sea. Woohoo! we made it out. And then they look over their shoulder, and here comes Pharaoh and his army. God, what do I do? I'm in distress. I'm in anguish. These people are not happy that I brought them out to be killed. God says, hold up your staff. The Red Sea will part because I am faithful. And it does. And they cross over. Yeah, Lord, but they'll still continue to pursue us. Easy, Moses. I got this. I'm getting low and inclining my ear to you. But at some point, I hope that you will realize that I am faithful. And the Red Sea closes down on them. And all of their pursuers are gone. And they've got it now, right? They've got it that God's faithful. But do I? Do you? No. Many times we don't. So they've been rescued from their pursuers. They've been freed from captivity. Now where are we going to eat? So God says, here, I'm going to send bread down because I am faithful. Later, well now what are we going to drink? Moses, go tap that rock with your stick because I am faithful. They get in a battle. Well now what are we going to do? Moses, hold up your staff. And as long as your staff is up, you will win the day because I am faithful. Do you see why he wrote what he wrote? Because he experienced God's faithfulness. We cannot live this life without knowing God's faithfulness. Verse 8. You've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. What he's saying here is, what all of us should be saying is, I've experienced distress and suffering. And in it, I did not turn to the things that I'm prone to trust, but I turned to God himself. I turned to my Savior, and when I did, he was faithful. And so, just as I said in the beginning, I will call on him as long as I live. Now I say it again now, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. It has this understanding of not I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. He's saying every single day will be marked by thankfulness to a God who has done far more for me than I could ever repay. Is that how we live? Have you ever been given a gift so great that even though you know you can't pay it back, you want to try to? Let me give you a really bad example of this. So my sister is in town from Norway. She's, she's here. She lives in Norway. She, she visits once every couple of years. And so maybe there's some guilt in there. I don't know. But she shows up with a gift for our family. And she says, hey, this is going to cover all of your birthdays, probably for the next couple of years. And Ellis gets to open it because he's the kid, right? You don't open the present in front of the kid. You let the kid open the present. And so he peels back one thing and something catches my eye. This little apple. It's not a red apple, it's a little white apple. And I start to get really excited because Will Hawk can be a very shallow person. And then Ellis pulls it off and it's a a third generation iPad for our family. And my hands begin uncontrollably rubbing together, which has become a trait that both my wife hates and my son is picking up. (laughs) She just thinks this is one of the creepiest things you can do. It's like every evil villain from cartoons, yeah, iPad, yeah. 
But the moment that it was like it hit me, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't say thank you. I couldn't hug her. It wasn't enough. I was just blown away. There are apps for days, and I'm going to be able to do this, that, and the other, and it's going to be great, but I've got to study for Sunday. Gracious. Because i got to preach on Sunday. So it's been sitting like off to the side, and I've been really, okay, I've played with it a little bit. But, but like today, I get to go, and that is a horrible example, Okay. But let me give you a better one. When we recognize what was done on the cross for us, can we say anything but, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living? Can we say anything but, the rest of my life is forfeit to you because of this gift that you have given me, one that I cannot repay, but I'm going to do my best to try. You see, we, we, we don't earn our salvations or our salvation if you only have one. We don't earn our salvation. We see that in Moses' story as well. He goes up, he gets the Ten Commandments to bring down to God's people. They were God's people before they ever had a law to follow. God didn't give them the rules and, say, and then say, oh, you're living by the rules, now you can be my people. That's great. He said, you're my people, now I love you enough to give you this law. We don't earn it. There was no way for us to. But we should live in response to it. And so it closes out with this. Verse 10 I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. My confidence was in God alone. I trusted no man. I trusted no thing. I trusted no ability of my own. So what does he say? What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits? What can I give to God in response to what he has given to me? This, this is a psalm of thanks. It's a psalm of praise. And he's saying, how can I live this out? Now, I hope you have your Bible for this part because here's what I'd like to do. If you look at verse 13 and 14, and you look at verse 17 and 18, just like we talked about in the Psalms, they're very much parallel. And so if you look at 13, it says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. Verse 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord. Verse 17, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Verse 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord. He's not trying to earn it. What this is, is a peace offering. Now, there were different offerings back in the old, different types of offerings back in the time of the Old Testament. But the peace offering was unique. And what was unique about it was this. When the animal was slain, it would be given to God, but part of the sacrifice was eaten by the one who prepared it. And it brings this idea of God hosting a meal at which we are welcome to sit because we have responded to him and are living our lives accordingly. It's this offering of peace. It's much like what we're about to do here. You see, it doesn't make sense. And, and that's, why, that's why the Lord's Supper is for Christians, because what sense does it make to come and remember the body that was broken for you or the blood that was shed for you if you don't recognize that a body was broken for you or that blood was shed for you? It doesn't make sense. But, but what's happening here is he's saying, I am going to give you this offering, this peace offering, and we're going to sit down at a table. And, and it alludes to the basic meaning of the Lord's Supper, that we're welcomed into God's presence so long as we're dependent on Him. No one walks up to the table and says, I kind of got this thing. I've got life figured out. I don't really need Christ. Nobody walks up to the table like that. We walk up and we say, 
I need you, Jesus. I love you because you heard me. Please don't stop hearing me. I love you because you were willing to die for me. And that's why he says in verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And he's not being morbid here. But what he's saying, he's not saying, it would bless you for me to die, so now I'm going to go out and do whatever I can to lose my life. But what he's saying is, in light of your wonderful condescension, you getting on your knees and inclining your ear to me, in view of that, what can I do but offer my life to you? What better thing do I have to give you than these 80 or 90 years, right? Or 90 or 100. I don't know what we're going with anymore. Brad keeps switching it up on us. He's saying, you're faithful So in in the end, when my days come to an end, so long as I'm dependent on you, you will receive glory from that. And I am so much more concerned with you receiving glory than I am with me receiving happiness or joy or an iPad or anything else. I'll give it all up. And if you look at verses 13, 14, 17, and 18, the back end of it, It says, call on the name of the Lord in the presence of all his people. Call on the name of the Lord, verse 17, in the presence of all his people. And this is what struck me. I'm reading through this, and I'm studying through this, and I'm convicted. And I'm like, God, this is supposed to be a psalm of thanks and praise. I'm supposed to be excited, not convicted. And then it hit me. How many times have we heard when we talk to someone about Christ, my relationship with God is a private thing. My relationship with Jesus is really personal. And can I tell you that what Christ did for you was exceedingly personal, but your response ought to be abundantly public. What Christ did for you, yes, it was exceedingly personal, but your response ought to be exceedingly and abundantly personal public. That's why we read scriptures like, he who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. That's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because they got this. And this is where the conviction for me turned into encouragement. The reason I'm convicted is because I am not publicly living this thing out the way God has called me to publicly live this thing out. Verse 16, I am your servant. I am your servant. The son of your maidservant, you have loosed my bonds. God, please pay attention to this. Please don't miss this. God, you have set me free from sin and death and self-trust and self-dependence. Therefore, I willingly bind myself as a slave to righteousness. As Christ bound himself to the cross for my sake, so I bind myself to my Savior for your glory. That's what this is saying. That's what this psalmist is so excited about. My life was in bitter distress. I've gone through it. I didn't know if it was going to come back and the test say cancer. I didn't know. I didn't know if I was going to get the bid. I didn't know if I was going to make the mortgage payment. I didn't know. I have a student right now whose father either died last night or is dying today of colon cancer. And he called me last night and he said, Will, my dad just accepted Christ. 
And his dad was so sick that all he could utter was Jesus. He couldn't, he couldn't say much else, but this was a man who for years was an alcoholic and abusive and literally spurned them for their relationship with God. He would walk into his room and verbally abuse him because he was trusting in God. And then he finds himself on his deathbed and all he can say is Jesus. And can I tell you what that man loves about the Lord? That he heard me. And the pity of that story. I'm ex- I, I'm ecstatic that his father turned but to me the pity of that story is he'll never get to live out the rest of it he was in distress and he called out to the lord and the lord heard him but he doesn't have the opportunity that you and i have he doesn't have the opportunity to go and publicly live this thing out what does it look like it looks like going to your community group this week and saying here's why i love the lord it it, it means going to the people that you love And it doesn't have to be robotic, like, hey, how are you doing? Weather sure is great. Let me tell you why I love Jesus. But it should just be a part of who we are. And the psalmist recognizes that. And he says, as Christ bound himself to the cross for me, so I bind myself to him. And it closes out in verse 19. In the courts of the house of the Lord. Here at church, Praise the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, in my city, praise the Lord. So our conviction to not living lives of thankfulness should now give way to saying, God, here's where I was, and here's what you did. So now, for the rest of my life, specifically for each one of my days, I'm going to live this life out because all that matters to me is that you receive glory. All that matters to me is that your name is made great. All that matters to me is that those who don't know about Christ would hear about Christ and that my life would be a living testimony of that truth. That's what I'm living for. That's what I'm going for. That's what I'm willing to die for because I can't pay back your good gift to me, but this is the best thing that I can do to say thank you. And so my prayer for you is this. My prayer for me is this. Go ahead and throw those points up real quick. When the things that we are prone to trust and fail us, will you respond in faith? And for those of us who have yet to turn to Christ in faith, will you put down that 14-inch limestone idol, that little stick that you have carved for yourself, that little notion of your own ability and your own intellect and your own goodness, and just say, Jesus, I need you. I can't do it without you. There's nobody else to trust. And when you do that, would you recognize That though what Christ has done for you is personal, the expectation, the way to live it is to, I asked you at the beginning of this sermon why you loved the Lord. To me, the person who is living this, the person that I want to more be, 
I can go up to anyone who has known them for six months or a year and say, why does this person love Jesus? And they'll say, oh, I can tell you. Because when there was a trouble, uh, I remember being at the schoolhouse and we thought something was going wrong with our baby. And in that moment, there was nothing else I could trust in but God. And I would hope that one of my friends would be able to say to, yeah, Will loves the Lord because when he was going through a really difficult time with their pregnancy, he trusted in God and God was faithful. That's how public our lives for Christ should be. So that the people who know us can answer the question for us. Why do you love the Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if I can first pray for those who do not know you. If I can first pray for those who have not responded, if I can first pray for those who are trusting in things that will fail them, Father, that you would show them that you are the all-sufficient one, that you can handle all things. And Father, not only that, there is nothing else. There is no one else that we can trust in. And Father, I pray that in recognizing that truth that they would turn their hearts to you and that when they turn their hearts to you that you will be faithful as your word tells us you will be faithful. And Father, we thank you for that faithfulness. And and we thank you that though what you have done for me, what you have done for us is an exceedingly personal thing, our response must, our response will be public. That the people in our families, that the people in our in our places of work, that the people in our school will know that we are lovers of God, will know that we are people who are seeking after a Savior because we're going to live our lives in such a way that it is obvious. And Father, may we realize that's not to be a scary thing. We just need to get over our pride. We need to get over our own self-estimation. And Father, we need to realize that as you willingly sent your Son to give all things for us, so we too should willingly give all things in seeking you. And Father, as we prepare to come to your table, kind of recognizing this peace offering, this response that here's where I was, but here's what God did, and now I am at peace with the Most High God. The blood of Christ was placed over the doorpost of my heart, and his wrath has passed over me. And I'm still here. I'm still living And so I want to enter into this meal with him, recognizing and remembering what Christ has done, recognizing and remembering the blood that was shed for my sin so that I can be at peace with the most holy God. Father, I pray that as we take of this meal, that our eyes and our hearts would be on the cross. Thank you, Father, that you hear us. Thank you, Father, that you hear us.